Feast of Dedication <coughs> will be starting on Thursday night. It's an eight-day festival, festival of lights, they call it sometimes. It had to do with the feast or the uh, dedication of the temple, of course. And the reason they called it Feast of Lights was because they didn't have enough candles to light for the whole time. And by apparently divine miracle, according to Jewish history at least, uh, the oil lasted <coughs> for the whole time. So, we didn't keep this for forever in the church, really. But uh, Christ was walking in the temple, it says, in the book of John, on the Feast of Dedication. And was obviously there for an important reason. And since we have been told that the temple must be built and that we can be part of that, uh, we'll also be part of the dedication of it. So I think it's important that we begin to, or have begun, to keep the Feast of Dedication looking forward to the time the temple is built and uh, the dedication of it. It's interesting to me that 924, which falls usually in late December, is the date Haggai mentions in connection with the blessings that will come in order to build the temple. And the Feast of Dedication begins the next day, uh, the 25th of the ninth month. So we have the 924 coming up on Wednesday and then 925 uh, on Thursday. There's no feast or anything connected with the 924 date. It's just the date God says, from this day forward I will bless you. And the whole subject there is in uh, conjunction with the temple being built. So I don't think it's the general blessings that he says in Joel and other places that will come in the first month, but it is a specific time of blessing in terms of the temple itself. Uh, that's the context of Haggai. So to have the Feast of Dedication starting right after he said he'll bless on that day uh, seems to be an important thing that God put together there. We shall see, but I think probably this year is not the time that the 924 will be important. Because if the dates in Haggai are to be carried out and the things that are mentioned on each of those dates in Haggai and Zechariah are done according to that time frame, uh, the message of gathering and building the temple starts on 6-1. And then 721 is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. There's been progress. But the real blessing, uh, he says, nothing's happened. Uh, but from this day, I'll bless you. So it appears to me, based on the timeline that I think is correct, that probably this coming Passover time uh, and thereafter will be the time of gathering because it seems to be connected with that in Isaiah 52, 53, and 54. Uh, and that by August, when 6-1 occurs, uh, the gathering would have occurred. Uh, 
and it'll be time to be preparing to get the temple done. But the real blessing of the perhaps the materials needed, the land opened up, the things that we need in order to actually accomplish it would start coming uh, next December, not this one, because these other events have not occurred first. How can you be blessed toward the building of the temple if the gathering hasn't even occurred, in other words? I think I only came to really understand that in the last six or eight months because I'd always watched 924 saying, what does this mean? Blessing on the church? But I wasn't really tying it to the context of Haggai. So the context there probably has very great meaning uh, that that blessing is associated specifically with the temple. The other blessing of signs and wonders and so on comes in the first month. And I have, I think I expressed this recently, uh, some questions about the first month. We have the first month of the worldly or the Gregorian calendar, but if you go through and look at important dates, both in worldwide and in Church of the Great God and in our history of this little group, Everything commenced in January, essentially, and important dates occurred in January. So, God could throw a twist in there. The first month he's speaking of, and the first month that we might be thinking of, could be different. Uh, This information that I've been preaching for these over 24 years now, first came in January. And we divided this land up in January. And there are a lot of things that happened in January. Uh, Same with Worldwide Church of God. And Church of the Great God began in January in 92. So I don't know whether that has any effect this coming January, a little over a month off, or a little under a month actually, but during it, uh, it could something just to kind of watch and see if this is a month that God is going to begin to do some of these things or if it's in April, the first month of God's calendar. If you look at the history of Worldwide Church of God and all of us since, uh, not much has actually happened in the first week of God's calendar. I mean the first month. Uh, Not many significant events. But, I mean, I could go on and on. The plain truth started then. The broadcast started in January. Uh, Just one thing after another. Uh, So, is that a month to watch? Just be aware. Be thoughtful. Be thinking. Uh, We'll see. But it appears that this next four and a half, five month period may be very important. Now, in light of that, I want to make a comment again about the situation that we are facing in this country and in the world, for that matter. Uh, You'll remember some months ago, I pointed you to Revelation 18, where uh, the great whore, America, is going to be destroyed, and the nations of the earth and the the merchants and so on are going to be wailing and crying because their market has been shut off. But there's one particular part down here that is becoming more and more, I think, obvious. And I wanted to review that a bit before getting into the sermon. 
here in Revelation 18, talking about destruction of this country, uh, in verse 21 it says, A mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea. Well, the sea in prophecy uh, connotes people, a sea of people. So he doesn't cast this into the ocean, the water, but in among the people. And you'll see that the effect here is indeed about people, which helps bear out the meaning of the sea. Saying, thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. So it isn't the sea or the ocean here that's affected but that great city, Babylon, uh, is going to be affected by this great millstone. A millstone put around your neck uh, in even American history and, and thought and throughout history, when you had a millstone put around your neck and were thrown in the water, the idea was to kill you. <laughs> uh, a millstone is heavy. And tied around your neck, you sink and you die. So he uses a millstone analogy here about this great city, Babylon. Uh, the city, maybe New York, maybe Washington, maybe a combination of the two. But it is, uh, they are simply the leadership of the whole country. And it is the whole country that is going down. Uh, they're just the uh, centers of government and the center of commerce. And here are some of the effects. The voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in you. The whole music industry will go down. Uh, movies with it, the whole thing. Uh, our way of life, our society will be destroyed. And the lousy music that we're hearing uh, on the airwaves in this country will be gone for good. So anyone who makes music, I think that portends both a destruction of the industry, but also of the attitude of enjoying music and enjoying the society and life we have around us, because it's going to be gone. will not be there anymore. So nobody's going to be singing. No craftsman of whatsoever craft he be, shall be found any more in you. So our manufacturing is going to be completely wiped out. Uh, nobody building houses, nobody building cars, nobody building anything. Jewelry, you name it. No craftsmen. All be gone. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in you. Well, the millstone itself had to do with the grinding of grain, not just drowning people. And uh, this portends... Lack of food, lack of agricultural production, lack of manufacturing of so-called food. Uh, that whole industry is going to shut down. No more macaroni and cheese uh, or anything else, good or bad. Uh, agriculture, in other words, is coming to an end. No more farming. Done. We're going to, a third of us die of famine and pestilence. You don't ha you're not eating when you're having famine and pestilence. That's other scriptures. The light of a candle shall shine no more at all in you. Uh, what's a candle for? Well, in the daytime you have the sun, you don't need a candle. 
At night, you have artificial light. So, nighttime activity is also going to be shut off. Uh, the restaurants, the partying, the bars, the, everything that needs light is going to go dark. Uh, no more at all will a candle or an artificial light be seen. Maybe the grid will go down. Uh, I think there's probably meaning there. Without a grid, you don't have much light. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall be heard no more at all in you. In other words, the breakdown of society's traditions, marriage, starting families, uh, everything is going to be in such chaos that marriage will be the furthest thing from people's mind. Uh, starting families, no. Everything is disrupted, in other words. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. Aren't they? There's Jeff Bezos with Amazon. I guess he is probably now the, I think I read something the other day, he is the wealthiest man on earth now. And he's New World Order all the way. Uh, Bill Gates is behind the vaccinations and all that mess. He's a billionaire with Microsoft. Uh, Soros is hiring people to create riots and so on. He's a billionaire. Uh, on and on it goes. Uh, our biggest corporations are funding uh, Black Lives Matter and Antifa and all of these groups. They're funding them by the millions and millions of dollars. So, the merchants, the great men of the earth, What did those great men do? What are they doing right now? For by your sorceries were all nations deceived. The word sorcery in the Hebrew or the Greek there is pharmakeia or pharmakeion. Uh, its root is in use in English as pharmacy or pharmaceutical. It's a root word for our big pharmacy, our big medical profession. So, it says, your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy, or their, sorceries, or pharmacies, were all nations deceived. We wondered how, over the years, the 666, the mark of the beast, not being able to buy and sell, would be introduced. And now it appears very, very obvious that they are using a medical deceit to usher that in. Something that most people would say, oh, we got to have health. we got to have no disease. We can't have all these pandemics. This is a pandemic, believe me. Uh, we can't have this. And therefore, if these people will bring us a vaccine so we can get rid of this and go back to normal life, we'll accept it. Now, some countries, and some even in the bureaucracy in Washington, are saying we will not make this vaccination mandatory. They don't have to. Qantas has already announced, one of the biggest airlines in the world from Australia, <clears throat> that you will not board their planes without a vaccination card. And the spokesman for Qantas said the other airlines are considering doing the exact same thing because they're in communication. Uh, 
So you won't be able to fly. Uh, you think you're going to get in Home Depot or Costco or Walmart without proof of vaccination? Not supposed to get in now without a mask. And they want to know, are you vaccinated before they'll let you in? According to one report I read last night, the Department of Defense put out a wallet-sized card yesterday, or at least they announced it and showed it, that has your history of vaccinations on this card, wallet size. So you can carry it with you and you can get in where you need to get in if you can show you've been vaccinated. Without that, you can't get in, which means you can't buy and you can't sell. And employers are going to require it to hire you. So you won't be able to get a job without your vaccination card. They're planning on giving these to everybody. They plan on having 5 million vaccinated before December is over this month. And they plan on having 100 million Americans vaccinated by February. That's a third of our people, essentially. So this is coming fast. Uh, you'll be showing that card. They're saying kids can't go to school without their vaccination card. And not even Zoom school or remote school over the Internet. They'll have to show proof of vaccination to even enroll in an Internet school. So it's here. It's here. Right on schedule, just as like fits the timeline we've been looking at all along. Fits it perfectly. And it's here. So you might as well realize that the mark of the beast is coming probably through this vaccination. They say the first shot won't have many side effects. You'll feel a little bleh, but not many side effects. But the second one will make you sick for a day or two, which you get two to four weeks later, depending on which pharmacy is making it. So they're getting everybody prepared. And what is this ultimately going to cause? Let's read on. By your pharmacies were all nations deceived. Worldwide medical scam. And in her, in this pharmacy, this sorcery, was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. The avowed goal of Bill Gates, of H.W. Bush Sr., of Jeff Bezos, of all these people, these billionaires, is to reduce the population of the earth by 90%. So that they will rule everyone that is left, and we will be their servants and their slaves, and that it will be a sustainable earth number, which the earth can sustain that many people. So out of 8 billion now, 90% will die. And that's what the book of Revelation says in verse 24. That it will be a pharmaceutical deception 
by the merchants of the earth, the billionaires, and they will be responsible for persecuting Christians, prophets and saints, and of all that dwell upon the earth. The 90% that will be killed, the blood will be on their hands because they are the ones that are setting this in motion. Now, does that tie it with the mark of the beast? You better think about this. If you don't take it, you will not receive government benefits anymore. Your Social Security will be cut off. Your VA uh, support will be cut off. Everything that comes from the government will be cut off unless you accept their vaccination card and have it filled out and then you are a responsible citizen. If you don't, you can't buy or sell and all your benefits will be cut off. They won't make it mandatory. You just won't have any benefits. You can't do anything. You can't go anywhere. It's already in the plans. They're already talking about it. There are articles about it all the time, about the various companies and what they plan to do once this vaccination hits. If it isn't the harbinger or if it isn't itself the mark of the beast, I will be very surprised. If you don't have this mark, if you don't have this card, and I imagine that they'll eventually not just have the card, but they'll put the chip in the hand or the forehead, and then you have the record with you. Losing your wallet won't qualify you for getting in Costco because you don't have your card with you. The card is the beginning. The chip comes later. And then at some point, the booster shot is being designed to kill millions and billions of people. They got it all planned out. It's coming. And God said it 2,000 years ago. Here it is. Are you ready to forgo going to town, doing anything that you have done in the past, and trust in God to take care of you? Are you ready for that? Only those who come under his protection will be safe. Only. And very, very few understand. You better get ready for some dynamic changes. Now, you should be aware already. You go to town and you see mass bandits everywhere you go. We've already swallowed the pill, brethren, as a nation. We've said, we'll knuckle under. We'll do whatever you say. So now they say, get vaccinated. I saw yesterday that there's a poll that was given where 51% of Americans are for vaccination, 49% don't want it. Now, who knows who they polled, but that's what they came up with. Now, if 51% are ready for it, they'll line up and get it. And maybe the rest of them, for whatever reason, don't want it. Okay, so you get fired. So you can't shop. So your Social Security is cut off. You think there's a lot of people going to flip on their opinion about whether they want it or not? 
I think that goes without saying. By them, by the merchants, the billionaires, through pharmacy, were all nations deceived. That is the means, that is the mode that they use to deceive us. And they've gotten the job pretty much done. It isn't very far off till they'll have it completely done. And only those who are going to serve the living eternal God will turn it down. The rest will accept it. Now I'm telling you ahead of time, when you heard it first here months ago, this scripture expounded. I didn't go into as much detail maybe. But the context shows that that is the wealthy men, the merchants, using pharmacy to deceive the nations, and the blood of the world is on them. Just bang, 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 bang. That's the context. So you might say, well, this doesn't have 666 on it, or this doesn't, it isn't in the hand or in the forehead. Give them time. This is where it's starting, right here. If you accept that vaccination, you're bending over and doing the will of your future masters. And once you start down that road, you won't be able to come back. You're already in danger if you're wearing a mask in town. You're already in danger if you're doing what they're telling you to do in order to be part of society and part of commerce and part of what's going on right now in the world. I won't wear one. They hand me one when I go in some stores and I'll take it in my hand, thank you, and I carry it on in. And if somebody comes up, which has happened once or twice now, maybe three times, you need to have your mask on. Okay, I'd put it up to here until they went away and take it back off. But I'm not wearing it over my nose and cutting off my oxygen supply. My brain's dim enough without that. I don't need it further dimmed by lack of oxygen. Thank you. Not only that, but it's not about the oxygen and your health as much as it is. Will you be subservient to this new world order, this reset they say, that is here and just getting stronger by the day. They just locked down the entire city of Los Angeles, four million people. They're not supposed to go out of their homes. The only thing that's essential, apparently, according to the mayor of of, uh, L.A., is grocery stores and pharmacies. Pharmacy, hmm, that comes up again. Medical and food, that's it. And otherwise, you're supposed to stay home. Can't go to work unless you work from home. That's right now. The governor of California is even saying if you go in a restaurant, you're supposed to put your mask up after every bite while you chew and swallow. And he just went to a great big party that nobody had masks on. A bunch of hypocrites. Who are they doing this to? Themselves? No, they're doing it to the people. That's who they're doing it to. They're deceiving the whole world while they themselves are above it. Isn't that the way of communism? You have the elite who live in the palaces and you have the rest who live in squalor. 
sharing everything in common. Not much there, but they get to share what's there. Because the elites have all of it. That's coming here. And in fact, it is already here. It is just simply a matter of degrees. This started in the 2019 and all through 2020. And next year is going to be far worse than what we've seen so far. So is your mind made up? Who are you going to follow? The world reset? Because this doesn't look so bad yet. Neither does a frog when he's in a pot of water think it's that bad yet. Until it starts boiling. Well, we're January, February, March. We're going to reach boiling point. They start getting that vaccine out. They're going to send a card with it. Because every one of those hundred million by February are going to have that thing filled out. And then as they get more and more, they're going to start requiring you to show it. If you don't have it, you just don't get in. Period. You ready to stay home? Got enough supplies in to stay home for six months? I picked that because God might start intervening come spring, come Passover. Uh, so you got enough to get from here to Passover without going back to the store? You may not be able to go to the store in another 30 days. I'm not predicting 30 days. I'm just saying it's not far off. Because once they start getting a, a big number of people with the cards, then they're going to start saying, oh, you get to come in. Well, why don't you go get your vaccination? It won't be long. You go get your card. Oh, well, I must run down and get vaccinated. It's here, brethren. Prophecy is being fulfilled before our very eyes and in our very lives. That said, and I already talked about dedication, I forgot to mention there's a sign-up sheet here for, for food for each night. The format we followed in the past is uh, we sing some extra hymns to God and praise to Him. I think we've been singing ten a night. Uh, that seems to be about right. It's a, it's a nice, solid time of singing joy to God and thanksgiving and hallelujah to His name but not enough to completely destroy your throat. <laughs> so seems about right. But we can have a little food with it. That's part of a feast, a celebration, feast of dedication. So here's a sign-up list so you can kind of see uh, what others are bringing, what you might want to bring so we don't have all of one and nothing of another or whatever. So it'll, I'll just leave it right here, and you can sign up for whatever. All right, let's go back to Matthew 5. Though it's important, I think, that I spend some time discussing what is going on, and we're supposed to be watching when we see the leaves come on the trees. We know that the time is near, and is here, for that matter. We see a lot of leaves now, which we were looking for two or three or four or five years ago. But... 
All of that watching and all that recognition of what is upon us does no good unless we're accounted worthy to be protected by God and escape these things. That's why I wanted to get back to the terms of the new covenant, and we're making slow progress, but that's okay. Uh, we need to consider each one of these things that Christ mentions very deeply. So we'll get into verse 6 today. We've gone through, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, who recognize their spiritual poverty and need. Uh, those that mourn, sigh and cry for the abominations that are going on in the world, and in our own lives, for that matter, that need to be rectified. And then the meek, the humble, those who get rid of pride, of ego, of vanity, of self-defense, of I'm important, uh, I'm better than you, comparing themselves among themselves. We have to be meek and humble. So then we come to verse 6. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst... After righteousness, for they shall be filled. Here is something that we need to be doing. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst. Now, when you're physically fasting or miss meals, you get thirsty and you get hungry. And you want food and drink. And fasting helps us to recognize that we need spiritual food and drink. Because just depriving the body of physical food and drink for a little while makes us begin to think of our humanity, of the fact that without food and water we won't last long, and we won't feel good very long at all, and we'll die. Now, through the Bible, God equates physical food and drink as a type of the spiritual. And here he's speaking of the spiritual, obviously. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Righteousness is not one of the seven basic food groups. Uh, it's not whole wheat bread, and it's not raw milk, and it's not range-free eggs. Not range, yeah, range-free eggs. It is a spiritual condition. So, hungry and thirsting after the physical is one thing, but what are we here for? You and I are not here for the physical. We were created physical. We have to do physical things. We have to work physically. Even Adam and Eve in the garden were to dress and to keep it, to keep it up, to take care of it. So, we were made to physically work. That's clear throughout the Scripture. In fact, Paul said, if you don't work, you don't eat. If somebody refuses to work, don't feed them. There shall be no welfare bums. <laughs> uh, if you work for your food, you get fed. If you don't, we're not supposed to take care of people who won't work. Now, there are some people who simply can't work. I have a son-in-law, in fact, who's completely paralyzed except for his eyelids, and he can move his eyes. And he is a candidate for being fed without working. But to be that physically disabled is rare. And those of us who are capable of providing are 
put upon in Scripture to provide. Now, that being a type of the spiritual, we are also to provide food and drink on a spiritual level. Everything we do physically should be a type of what we should be doing spiritually. God made us physical. We're going to live a certain amount of time and we're going to die. So, the physical is unimportant in that sense, except that what we do physically reflects the importance of the spiritual, which is forever. This is a temporary type. So if you work hard to provide physically the things that you might desire, food, drink, car, house, foot, clothes, a bed, you work hard to attain those things. Well, they're utterly unimportant compared to the spiritual things that are eternal and last forever. So when God says, whatever your hand finds to do, do with your might, we think of it in terms of the book of Ecclesiastes, which was written from a human, physical standpoint, and that scripture is in there. We think of the physical, generally. Whatever my hand finds, do it with zeal, with energy. Get the job done. Don't be lazy. If you work for somebody, give them an honest day's work. Work hard. And enjoy the benefits from that work. So, what Christ is saying here is that we should hunger and thirst after righteousness in the same way we hunger and thirst to take care of our physical needs. But the physical need, by and large, is more obvious to us, is it not? I need a roof. I need a blanket. I need some heat. I need some food. When I go home tonight, I don't want to miss dinner. I need these things. Therefore, I'll go to work so that I can have these things. So that is very apparent to us. But our spiritual needs sometimes can be put on hold while we deal with the physical And what we have to do is find a balance between taking care of the physical, which is only a type of something more important, the spiritual. Now, you'll probably, as a human being, spend more time working physically than you do pursuing spiritual needs. I mean, we work in America today approximately an eight-hour day. And you don't pray and study eight hours a day, generally speaking. Now, back in biblical times, they worked from six to six, 12-hour days. That was a day's work, was 12 hours. And the rest of your life had to be taken up with the other 12. Cutting wood, (laughs) building the fire, cooking food, uh, shopping for food, growing food, whatever else you did had to be the other 12 hours because you worked for the man 12 hours a day. Therefore, the women did an awful lot of the other stuff. They carried the water. They cut the wood, mostly. 
They did a lot of things that we don't do today. And they went out and washed their clothes on a rock. Didn't have a whirlpool. So they had a 12-hour day too. Well, maybe they still had the saying back then. I don't know. A man works from from 6 to 6, but a woman's work is never done. Because when he came in from 12 hours of hard labor, then she had to take care of him on top of what she'd been taking care of all day long. When God said, you'll work by the sweat of your brow, he meant business. We have it easier today in America probably than any society has ever had. And that's quickly coming to a halt. So, people had to work long hours, and we still have to work roughly eight hours with breaks and lunch and everything, whatever, to earn enough to take care of our physical needs. And that's quite fair. That gives you two-thirds of your time for other pursuits. But how hard do we do we work, how much do we realize, how much need do we feel for getting close to God and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Now that's something that can occur in accord with your work. It isn't something where you have to spend X amount of hours studying and praying in the evening. But Christ makes it clear in the New Covenant to think as Christ thought, to bring every thought into his captivity, to walk as he walked or do as he did. So even though you may be working eight hours, during that eight hours of working, you're supposed to be thinking, how would Christ do this job? How would he build this? How would he think during the process? How would he serve his employer if he had one? How would he take care of things? In other words, what's the right way to do things? And we need to be thinking of that. Am I giving good value for the pay that I receive? Or am I just barely doing enough to keep from getting fired, but I'll spend my check anyhow? You know, there are a lot of people like that. It's gotten so bad now, they, a lot of these young people think if they're on the job texting and listening to their phone or looking at the screen, that they're working. And employers have a problem with that. No, you're here to work, not to text. But they don't think that way. They're there on the job, and therefore, since they're spending the time there, in their mind, that equates to working. I'm here. That's work. Now, I don't have to do anything. I'm just here. I'll get paid for being here. There's a lot of that mentality around, or I'll do just what's absolutely necessary to get by. Oh, I'm sorry, customer. Wait just a second. got to finish this text. You know? You see a lot of that. How would Christ do it? How did he do it? Now, who did he work for? 
He wasn't a fisherman. He wasn't a tax collector. He worked for his father in heaven. That's who he worked for directly. And then he worked for a lot of people in healing them, helping them. Uh, he was their servant as well. But his main service was to his father doing a job here. A job of living a life without ever making a mistake, committing a sin. Now, if you want a job, there's one. <laughs> that was his job, to come down here and never sin. Live 33 and a half years without ever committing a sin. And at the same time, keeping all his thoughts within line of what his Father in Heaven thought. Because anything less than that to him would have been sin. So he had to keep it right all the time. But what Christ is saying here is that we need to hunger and thirst after righteousness, not just after the physical. But use your thirst and your hunger for the physical as a springboard to understand how you need to be working spiritually. I gotta work. Okay. I gotta have a paycheck. Okay. I also gotta get into the kingdom of God. Okay. That's the most important thing because otherwise you're on a downhill slide to the grave and that's where you're gonna stay. Short of the lake of fire. So you need to be preparing for the kingdom of God. And he says to hunger and thirst after it the same way you would food and water. Have the same zeal for righteousness. All right, what is righteousness? Maybe if we're going to seek it, we ought to know what it is. You can look it up in the... Hebrew for the Old Testament and the Greek for the New Testament and what words they use for righteousness. And you'll find in the Hebrew, uh, it's from a word that means legal uh, or prosperity. What does righteousness have to do or righteous with prosperity? Well, if you're doing things right, you'll prosper. That's what all the Proverbs and the whole Bible say. If we do things the right way, we'll prosper. <clears throat> and in a legal way. Of course, the legality of the commandments in the Old Testament was part of the root of the word righteous or right. In the Greek, it comes from words that mean innocent or holy. What is holy? It's being like God, who is holy. That is what God is, is holy. So, if we're to be righteous, we need to be like God. Now, what it boils down to, I looked it up in Webster's Dictionary as well, just in normal English. Right means correct. It means moral. Uh, there's, oh, I mean, there's a bunch of words in the dictionary that are right and they define it different ways. I mean, you have land rights. You have all kinds of things that are right. But speaking in terms of conduct in life, right means moral. It means correct. 
doing the right thing. Uh, just, proper, or agree to a standard. Now, translating that to righteousness or God's standard, we agree to a standard. The things that God says in this book are right. This is the standard we follow. Live by every word of God. So, the root word for righteous is simply right. We do the thing that is right. So, we need to hunger and thirst to be right, to do right, to live right, to think right. We agree with this standard of how to think and act. That's all righteous is. Right is that which is proper and good and correct. Righteous is simply an adverb, which means that you do those things that are right. In other words, righteous is a state of being. It's a state of how you are. You're doing things in a right means, a right standard, a right way, and that means you are righteous. It's a religious-sounding word, but it's, it's not really. It's just doing what's right. And you, using an adverb, are righteous, are doing right, when you're doing right. That makes you righteous. Righteousness is doing those things which are right, and that equates to you as a being. Righteousness. The right standard of God, in other words, is righteousness. So we hunger and thirst after the correct standard of God. So it's important to understand when he says hunger and thirst after righteousness, that we know what it is we're doing. We're seeking the right way. We're trying to understand what is right. So it's not kind of a protestant religious term. It's simply following God's way. And that makes us right. So we study to understand what is right. We study God's Word to know what is right. We meditate on what is right and what is wrong. What is moral, what is immoral, what is sin, and what is not sin. It's that simple. But that requires some effort. It requires some study, some prayer. To become right. So the first thing is understand what is right, and then... Do what is right, which makes you righteous, and you're living in righteousness. You're living the right way. That's all it means, living the right way. And he says, if we hunger for that, we want to be right. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be the one that wins every argument. We're talking about a different thing there. I saw a t-shirt the other day that says, I'm not arguing with you, I'm simply explaining why I'm right. <laughs> That's what both sides of the argument are doing. Loudly. 
But we don't, I mean, part of being humble and meek is that we don't have to always win the argument or be the one who is right about an issue. We need to be meek and humble and not really care in that sense who's right or wrong. Instead of fighting, can we recognize maybe a difference and love each other anyway? The object is love. The object is not to win the argument. The object is to get done talking, whether it was sweet talk or mad talk. And when you're done talking, you still love each other. You know, Paul and Barnabas got really angry with each other. Uh, He dumped Barnabas and took Silas, I think it was, or vice versa, whatever. But Peter and Paul had some differences of opinion. But when it was all said and done, they loved each other. Because the love of God pervaded the situation. So, as husband and wife, you'll have contentious times. You'll have times when you disagree. Now, you may come to the end of the fight and still be upset, contentious. So, you both shut up and go the other direction. What's that? That's cool down. Instead of screaming anymore, let's go our separate ways and cool down. Now, after we cool down, let's kiss and make up and love each other. We never quit loving each other. We just disagreed and we fought over it. Now the fight's over. We'll do it your way or my way. We're going to do it. We'll just, we've decided now this is the way it's going to be. And I'm going to get over being mad about it. I'm going to accept it. Now we have this contention on a spiritual level with God, don't we? You find yourself fighting against what is right according to this book and this standard. Because you want to do this or that. You want to think this or that. Therefore, there is a built-in animosity toward that which is the right standard of God. It's just part of our nature. When man be uh, partook of Satan's nature in the garden, his nature changed from a knowledge only of good to one of knowing the difference between good and evil and loving the evil more than the good. That's just what we became. And that's what we are today, every last one of us. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. So, if our righteousness as a human being is like that, then what is it we're seeking to achieve? God's standard of righteous. Our own standard doesn't count. You look at somebody out here in the world. What is their standard? Well, the barroom crowd has one standard, which is pretty low. You can step over it pretty easy. And then business, depending on who it is and who's running it, has a different standard of what's right and wrong. And people then have their own opinions of what's 
the standard. Some people say homosexuality is the correct standard. Some people say marriage is the correct standard. Some say serial monogamy, one partner after another, is the... Oh, you, you don't just sleep with ten people at once. You just do one at a time. That's serial monogamy. See, that's their standard. And then to some, their standard is marriage only. So, wherever you go, wherever you look, people have different standards. But nobody's standards reach God's standards. And therefore, since we have our own code of ethics, our own code of morals, that which we operate by, you've got relatives that have a different standard than you, right? They do this, you do that. They think this is wrong, you think it's okay. And vice versa. So everybody has their standard of righteousness, and God says, it's all filthiness to me. Because everybody who sets his own standard incorporates and includes a certain amount of sin. A certain amount of that which he allows himself. We just talked about that in terms of government. They have their standard of conduct in our society. The latest one is everybody wears a mask wherever they go. That's their standard for society. But their standard for themselves is I don't need a mask. So there's a totally different standard depending on who you're talking to. That's us. So God says, that's not good enough. You have to live by my standard. You have to seek that which is right according to my word. So when we hunger and thirst after righteousness... It has to do with his standard. Only his standard. Now we see that in these pages. And we all fall short of it. Why do we fall short of it? Because mentally and emotionally, our standard has not become his standard. And we fall short of it because we don't think that high. In other words, we excuse ourselves, we justify ourselves. Well, I can do this, it's not much of a sin, or, or it's not really a sin, or, man, I just want to. Or, we completely block out that which is correct, and only think about what it is we want to do. You ever caught yourself doing that? You think, well, would God do this? And then somehow your mind goes from would God do this to this is what I want to do. And you forget about God. It's easy just to dismiss God from your thoughts because your mind's on what it is you want to do. Your standard. That may not be your standard tomorrow, but it's your standard for today. I know that tomorrow I'm going to feel bad about this. And I'll go back to the standard of God. But right now, man, I want to do this. I want to think this. So we temporarily suspend God's standards so that we can do our standard, whatever it might be and in whatever subject. So we put God on hold. Now, putting him on hold is not hungering and thirsting after doing what is right. 
Instead, we find ourselves hungering and thirsting for something that is wrong. I want to do this. I want to do this now. That kind of hunger and thirst we've got to get rid of. Get rid of the appetite for that which is sin or evil and develop an appetite, a hunger. That's what an appetite is, a hunger for that which is right. I say to a food server once in a while, I say, how was it? I say, oh, you destroyed my appetite. And I get a kind of a double take. Well, they did. I'm not hungry anymore. <laughs> Usually they catch it in a few seconds, you know. Oh, you ate, you're full, you don't have appetite anymore. But it's fun to mess with them. But we need to develop the right appetites. That's what we have to develop. Not the sensual, not the selfish, but the godly. Do that which is right. Is all righteousness means. Uh, let's go to John 6. About to run out of time already. We're just getting this introduced. But we need to know what it is we're supposed to be having an appetite for. John 6. And here I want about verse 35. Well, let's start in 32. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. What did Moses give them? Physical food, manna, quail, through God, but that's what they got. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So that shows that I'm correct in the analogy of the physical only being a type of of that which we should be hungering for spiritually. And we should go after it in the same way that when we're thirsty and hungry, we go after food and water. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. That's spiritual life. That's eternal life. That's what Christ's sacrifice, his bread, his flesh, provides for us. (coughs) Then said they to him, Lord, evermore... Give us this bread. We want this kind of bread forever. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. So here we get into the explanation and definition of chapter 5, verse 6. We're to hunger and thirst for Christ. He typifies himself as bread and water. The water of the Word and his body, his life, is our food, spiritually speaking. So if you're going to hunger and thirst after righteousness, you're going to seek Christ. You're going to spend your time seeking him to have the right communication, the right relationship, the right thinking process, to be like he was. He was always right. Now, you and I use that word in a negative way when we talk about someone who always has to be right. 
Now, what we're describing there is somebody with ego, vanity, selfishness, who always has to show that he's right no matter what the argument, no matter who it is that he's up against, he's going to be right. And you see people that have that kind of uh, competitiveness and pride and vanity that they always have to come out right. Now, with meekness and humility, people will not have that attitude, but they'll recognize their spiritual poverty and their need to be like God and to think like God that they don't have. And so, therefore, they will be hungering and thirsting to be like Christ was. What is Christ to us? Well, He's Savior, can give us eternal life. He's Redeemer, who can redeem us from the world and its ways. He's our husband-to-be. And He wants us to be like Him in order to be married to Him. Isn't it awful when you see a couple that are married that are essentially just different from each other? Have very little in common. Don't think alike. Can't read each other's minds because their minds are just simply different. And they have trouble getting along. Well, he has a mind that is always correct. And if we're going to be married to him and be like him, then we need to come to have the same kind of mind he does. There's the reason for having the mind of Christ, is you're going to live with him forevermore. And you're not going to fight with him. You're not going to argue with him. He's going to be the perfect husband, and we're going to become the perfect wife. Did I say that? Look at us. We're a long ways from it, aren't we? But we'll be this way until our change comes. And he makes us into spirit beings, and he takes away this nature that we have that pulls us down. Our very nature pulls us down. He's going to give us a totally opposite nature, which pulls us up. You'll automatically want to do what's right instead of what's wrong. That's beyond your imagination. It's beyond mine. I've lived with a down-pulling nature all my life. And sometimes it pulls me down. Sometimes it pulls us all down. Because it's always, it's just like gravity. It's always there. Pulling us toward negative, pulling us toward sin, toward wrong thought, toward hate, toward animosity, toward judgment, toward all these things that we tend to be, that we shouldn't be. It's always there, dragging at us. Can't imagine being drug upward all the time, inspired upward. But when your change comes... You'll no longer be mortal, but immortal. And the mind will completely change in the way that it operates. It'll operate in the spirit instead of the flesh. What an incredible change that is going to be. But we've got to learn right now that the kind of mind we have leads downhill into death. And we have to hunger and thirst for the kind of mind that Christ has that is always upbeat.
That's why Paul said, whatever thing is good, whatever thing is right, whatever thing is righteous, whatever thing is upbeat and positive, think on this, not on the negative. Christ's bride will never have a negative thought. She won't have one. She won't question anything he asked her to do. Oh, absolutely. I'm on it. Always. Can you imagine that, living with... Well, try to go with your husband. His everything he's ever said, everything he's ever done, inspired you to say, Oh, I love you so much. I'll do anything you say, anytime you ask. Well, girls and boys, that ain't life. That isn't human. We all have our ups and downs. We all have our disrespects. We all have our things with each other in our closest relationships. And those that are once or twice the third time removed, we really have problems with. But with him, believe it or not, our minds will be changed to the point that we'll never have another negative thought. It'll all be upward. No gravity of thought. I look forward to that day. Because I'm tired of fighting it, aren't you? It gets to be a struggle, a battle, day to day. Everything we think, everything we do, it's a struggle to do it right. <clears throat> and that not that what Revelation 3, about to the Laodiceans, is all about? Pursue me with zeal, with energy, with all your heart, Jeremiah 31, and you will find me. You'll find the husband you're looking for. So he's your savior. He's your redeemer. He's your husband. He's your brother. He's everything you could possibly want. And we're to be like it. Now, will you ever attain being right and doing right without seeking it? That's the question. You've got to go after it. Like the man who went after the pearl of great price. Like other analogies Christ used in some of the parables. That we go after things in a very diligent manner. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. And if you want to be right and righteous, do it with all your heart. <clears throat> That's all he wants is wholeheartedness. Do it with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and being. That's how he says we're to worshiping. Heart, mind, body, and soul. All of you has to be after him, to be like him. If you're ever going to be his bride, you've got a lot of change to do to get there. Now, fortunately, he's going to do most of it at the resurrection, or the, when the last trump sounds, is when most of it will occur. What we do is a minuscule part in the meantime. But he says work at it. Overcome. You've got to work to overcome, don't you? What are you overcoming? Being wrong. You're overcoming not doing it according to his standard. So you have to overcome yourself and the world and Satan is what you've got to overcome. Now that takes effort. To, to not be like we are and to be like Satan is and the world around us is takes a lot of effort to be right or to be righteous and to be like God. But that's the goal. That's the purpose. 
So he says, if you will seek it like you would physical food and water, you will be filled. He's not going to deny you. If we work at it the way he says to work at it, I will fill you. I will give you the bread of life. I will give you the water of the word. I'll spill my blood for you. And you will be justified not in your works, but in his. And we'll see some more of that as we go on. I'm not done with this subject by any means, but let's understand what it is we're after. And that's to be just like he is. And hunger and thirst to go after him with our whole heart, mind, body, and soul. That's what hunger and thirsting is. On a physical level, if you're hungry and thirsty, and it's the same on a spiritual level. So our work is cut out for us if we're to be filled spiritually in the way that he is hoping we do. He wants us in his kingdom. It is his good pleasure to give us eternal life. That's what he wants to do. Now, we need to give him as much reason to do that as we can. So that we're happy and he's happy. We please him and then he pleases us. And it's hap, hap, happy all the way. Well, that's the way it's supposed to be. But our work's cut out for us to hunger and thirst after that kind of situation.